Welcome to Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts taking an unreasonably deep dive into this week's health news. This week's words are apple-shaped, scientifically, where you live, childbirth. For a second I thought you said apple shank. You know, like, shank, like prison shank. (laughs) It's like, I'll shank you you with an apple, bitch! (laughs) That doesn't seem like it would be, like, it would keep. It'd be super deadly. I mean, I I never watched Orange is the New Black, so I don't really, I don't, God. I don't, as a white woman, I don't know anything about prison, because I feel like that's how only white women pretend to know about prison, yeah. so I just feel like apples would, would not be great. Well, I think you're right, and I think Orange is the New Black got too dark. They took that whole Breaking Bad Like, darkness is interesting in a character. And they went so far that I actually had to stop watching. I think there was an episode when they were, like, what's that called? Like, schlocking each other. You put a lock in a sock and you, like, hit someone in the face with it. And it was so gruesome. And they really showed it. And it was women. And at a certain point, I just thought, this is, like, I Why am... This is not an escape. This is just the worst imaginable prison scenario also the main character was made to hate and i just i don't know what is the point so um yeah it was (laughs) it was disappointing it was real disappointing so what's our first story so our first story comes from medical express uh and it's apple shaped body or pear shaped your genes may tell and that's G-E-N-E-S, so, not, the, not the denim variety. That is correct. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> um, so there was a new study that has uncovered 24 gener- genetic variations that help separate the apple-shaped and the pear-shaped ones. Um, and so they're trying to explain why some people are prone to carrying excess waste around their belly, which uh, could be um, used to create a link to shed light on the biology of diseases linked to obesity, um, particularly the abdominal obesity. Um, So it was looking at that and it was looking at um, how genes can kind of dictate where it will be. However, um, they um, don't think that it's all genes um, dictated. Um, no one is saying that the body weight and shape are genetically set in stone. So. Okay. Diet and exercise. Diet and um, exercise. More research needed. <laughs> yes. But it's looking at the fact that we have, um, a more sedentary lifestyle, sugary and high calorie diets, um, and how that can be um, contributing to our obesity epidemic, but also um, where you hold that weight can also impact what diseases you might have in the future of diabetes or stroke, um, and those kinds of things. So is it better to be pear-shaped? Is that what they're saying? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Pear-shaped, well, yeah, I, I think don't so. know. 
Well, I don't think they're saying it directly here, but I think that that is the situation. I think that storing fat... You don't over, want it around your middle. Yeah, you don't, because for that's some like, reason, that's like heart attack city. Yeah. So, that's what they're trying to dictate, is that it, it is... Um, there's an unintentioned theme to this week's um, episodes. What is uh, it? Uh... Let, let me know if you figure it out. Apple-shaped, <laughs> scientifically where you live, childbirth. I don't know, because, like, what is, scientifically, I'm not, I don't even, oh, I, I don't, okay, we'll get to that. So for this, <laughs> I object to that, and I'm going to table my objection. Um, this, I think, is interesting. The thing is... <laughs> They're saying that body weight is not a genetic set point, but I feel like a tendency to be more lean or less lean is. And they haven't talked about um, visceral fat, which is the fat that you store between your organs, which can be kind of interesting. Like, so you can, you can be so-called skinny fat if you're kind of packing the fat more inside your, more inside your body, which is like something interesting. Um, Hmm. This is like no one, yeah, this is a line in the story. No one, however, is saying that body weight and shape are genetically set in stone. But I really feel like that's wrong. Like, maybe not completely set in stone. We can all go up and down in weight. But as far as, like, how you're shaped, that really seems like it is set to me. Maybe, but, like, obesity is not set in stone. Yeah. Morbidly obese is not set in stone. You're not... (laughs) I think they're, you're not genetically uh, programmed to be obese or morbidly obese, right? Like, right. that's not genetics. Or, like, very rarely it's uh, genetic. Mm. Right. A lot of it might be, like, other health issues, but it is not necessarily genetic. Mm-hmm. Like, you can be big-boned, but that's different than... Than being heavy. Right. So I feel like this is one of those studies that probably significantly advanced our understanding, right? They found the genes, identified some two dozen genetic codes that dictate how body fat is distributed. But this story is not going to get a ton of press because there's no actionable takeaway. And it's probably too complex for them to tell us about the genetic coding, meaning like, for a lay audience, they probably don't think that we're interested, but, um, <laughs> cause really, I feel like if you tell this to a normal person, they're just like, Oh, okay. Like they found some genes, but if they really could, oh. if they really could change how fat is distributed on your body, imagine that. Cause then you could potentially change the heart attack risk of a gajillion people. I mean, that's kind of a pessimistic potential outcome. Cause you're assuming that we can't keep people from gaining weight so we can help them distribute the weight in a safer way. But it would also be interesting to know that if, like, say you had a person who's apple-shaped and you gave them this drug and they become more pear-shaped, like, is it actually safer? Or, like, would their heart attack risk go down? Because there's also a, a possibility that the genes for the apple-shaped body are simply associated or correlated with genes that link to a higher risk of heart attack 
with weight gain no matter where it is. You know what I mean? Like there's that possible complication too. So this is probably mm-hmm. this is probably a more interesting story than it reads as, but you know. What can we say? <laughs> um wait, I so found it. You found it? So I'm super smart. Oh. <laughs> so uh, wait, so like apple sh- what shape what fruit shape am I? I feel like I'm um, a I'm a straight asparagus. I'm a straight banana. <laughs> I would say asparagus. You have a head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lollipop. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I would I would I don't know. I don't know. Triathlon has kind of changed things a little bit, so I can't tell. Like Plus, apple or pear is very is very narrow. I need more. I need more fruit options. Maybe I'm a fig. You don't know. Um, all right, Laura. You don't know me. You don't know me. <laughs> What's this story that you labeled scientifically? Because that's the worst label. I mean, I love you so, but like, scientifically cannot be the topic. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, I'm pretty sure it is. So our next story comes from CBS News, and it's scientifically proven ways to lose weight and improve health. Oh, my God. You're welcome. It's scientifically. Did we ask science? (laughs) According to science. Yes. Oh, my God. It's no secret the United States has an obesity problem, Robin. More than 93 million Americans are obese and millions more overweight, according to the CDC. And a recent study from Cleveland Clinic shows that fewer people are actually doing anything about it. So how about that? Well, shout out to Cleveland, BT-dubs. Great city. Great city. Ohio! Woo! Um... Uh, so researchers found that three quarters of the people who were surveyed about... are concerned about their weight, and 65% are worried about getting health disease from heart uh, disease due to extra pounds yep yet okay. less than half are actually trying to make any dietary <laughs> or changes or lose weight <laughs> i love you america my... yeah <laughs> okay true story i went to goodwill to buy a scale a couple weeks ago not for like weight loss specifically, but because I'm going to try to use this app called RestWise to monitor how I'm recovering from my workouts, which should help with like injury prevention. And one of the metrics that they need for the app in order to predict, like every day they're going to tell me how prepared I am for my workout or something. So I'm going to give it a, a try for a month, but you have to put in your weight every single morning. So I went to, <laughs> went to Goodwill and I was actually like looking for an insulated mug and a thermos and like some cold swim stuff. And then I remembered, I was like, oh, I should check and see if they have scales well so i'm there it's mid-february like ballpark it laura how many scales do you think were at the goodwill uh four more than 10 i mean so so many that they actually had them in their own like little receptacle they were like stacked up like waist high and i was like okay because i think it's like everyone wants to lose weight and then after like six weeks or so everyone's like all right this isn't healthy this is stupid this scale's not helping me and they chuck it so february good time to get a scale at the goodwill you're welcome gotcha gotcha yeah so uh Nearly one in five of those surveys said they did, they believed their diet had nothing to do with their heart health. Oh, my God. 
More than half didn't know that obesity is linked to high bad cholesterol levels. Mm-hmm. And two-thirds said they did not know that obese, being obese could lead to stroke. Yeah, that's more understandable. Okay. So, uh, it tells us that Americans aren't aware of how their diet and exercise impact their weight and health. Um, <laughs> but he's saying if you... Um, if you lose 5% of your body weight, you can start seeing uh, health improvements. Okay. And then they give you some ways to do that. Would you like to guess what they recommend? Diet and exercise. Oh, my God. You're brilliant. Genius. He's like the smartest person ever. Thank you. So they talk about dietary guidelines of having three to five servings of vegetables and two to four servings of fruit every day. That trans fats, sodium, and added sugar should be limited. Trans fats should be eliminated. What is limited? Don't no. Just cut that shit out, folks. Sweetie, they don't know that their yeah, ha- know. their weight can. Yeah, right. So the <laughs> Mediterranean bar. diet is offered as the dash diet and healthy eating habits, and they recommend staying away from detox diets or the currently trendy keto diet. Yeah. Keto, the keto it's not sustainable no, in the long not. run. It's not sustainable in the short run for most people. The keto diet works great for fat burning if you can keep yourself in a ketogenic state, which most people can't because if you if you eat one cracker your bo- and if you go over your carbs by even a tiny amount, like you're supposed to be it's like 70% fat, uh 20% it's either 20 and 10, I can't remember which protein and carbs. But if you if you go even a tiny bit over in the keto diet, your body, which which wants to burn carbs as a primary fuel source, is going to flip over and start burning carbs again. And people don't realize that. And like if you flip to burning carbs and you're eating seventy percent fat, guess what? Like you're not going to be losing a lot of weight. So that's the short version mm-hmm. of why I th- like keto totally works. It's just that people don't have the willpower to do it. I mean, and who can blame them? It's super hard. So love y'all, but right. don't do it. They also avoided, um, uh, they recommend avoiding eating snacks after dinner, not eating within two hours before bed, mm. and eating slower can help you lose weight. Yeah. Um, and so they recommend closing the kitchen after dinner. Ugh. Um, and Brutal. to maybe work with a regist- registered dietitian um, to see if it's covered by your insurance. Mm-hmm. Or some dietitians can also work on a sliding scale. And it's also important and to point also- out that a dietitian and a nutritionist are not the same thing. So a dietitian is like registered and licensed, and that's a higher bar. And a nutritionist, as far as I understand, anyone can tell you that they are a nutritionist. So you really want to be careful about who you hire. Mm. Good point. They also recommended doing like food planning um, and food uh food prep um, because you plan it what you're going to eat for the week it can help reduce food waste save money and get your kids and family involved with shopping and prep i'm down with that i think this is actually a pretty good article (laughs) it's so it's so sad that people don't realize that diet impacts heart health like seriously i mean Mm -hmm. okay that being said that being said 
I feel like this is kind of information that you tell people and they're like, la, 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 because it's so anxiety provoking and stressful when someone is like, hey, you have to change. You know, like food is comforting. Food is designed to be comforting. Like we evolved, like food is, you know, food is security. And so when we tell people you have to limit your food, you have to make food less enjoyable, I think they just block it out. And I think that's why people don't know. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It doesn't doesn't make me feel good. No. Yeah, it does. And, like, I can tell you I had a stressful meeting today and, like, I ate chocolate right afterward. (laughs) And you know what? It super duper helped me. Did not help me with my subsequent run, which went terribly. But, honestly, I think that chocolate was a small factor and maybe I was just due for a rough one. But it was, like, it was rough. It was rough. Mm -hmm. Do you really like, okay, what would you say you had a, say you had someone, Laura, and they came to you and they're like, Laura, I need to lose weight. Tell me one thing I should do. Like, or like, what would you tell them? We should exercise more. Mm. Uh, 30 minutes of moderate exercise can, um, can help improve that. I would tell them, yeah, I would tell them to lift weights and eat more protein. I don't know if that's and good advice. And this is why we're nutritionists and not <laughs> dietitians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I just, yeah, this is really interesting. I also like have mixed feelings about the Dash diet. I haven't super duper looked into it, but um, I'm not necessarily pro skinless poultry and fish. Like, I feel like uh, I don't know. I guess. I guess for the vast majority of people, if they followed the DASH diet, it would be a huge improvement over what they're currently eating. But I don't, I don't know that this whole thing of like no salt, like low fat dairy, skinless meat products, like I just, they're not meat products, like skinless meat cuts. I actually think that I've seen some discussion around letting people eat small amounts of full fat dairy and like eating more parts of an animal is actually going to increase your nutrient diversity and be helpful in that way. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, like I don't do full fat dairy. I do like 2% milk or whatever, because I, I drink so much milk that I'm a little concerned that that would be a lot of saturated fat, but I feel skeptical of low sodium, low fat diets. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Call That's myself fair. a nutritionist. You could have okay. So is the theme <laughs> is the theme obesity and weight loss this week? Kind of unintentionally. That's okay. kind of it's showing up in every kind of thing. <laughs> What's our next story? Um. So our next story comes from Market Market Watch. It's uh, Stanford University researchers say where you live can also help you live longer. Yeah. So it's looking at like different things that can be impacted by where you live. And so the first thing is, um, if do you want to live longer, live near a primary care physician. So looking at U.S. population data, every 10 additional primary care physicians per 100,000 people was associated with 551.5 days increase in life expectancy. Okay. Uh, based on a study published uh, in the peer-reviewed medical journal, Jama. I just think it's funny that they called it that. <laughs> yeah. um, although primary care physicians has actually fallen um, 
it's in from 2005 and 2015 to 2015 um, by about uh, five points. Um, about so five per hundred thousand people. Yeah, well, I think mm-hmm. being I think primary care has been de-incentivized by like huge paperwork requirements and lower compensation rates for that type of physician. So it seems. Um, wait, so being geographically close? Mm-hmm. I mean, how close do I have to be? <laughs> Cross the street? I mean, if you can. Um, <laughs> but having access to primary cares appears to um, make it more likely that you would be able to access them. Okay. Which is interesting because we're kind of seeing a decreased emphasis on things like the annual physical as promoters of longevity. Mm-hmm. But maybe it just means that if you're closer to a primary care provider, then when something comes up, you're more likely to go. Like if you have to drive two hours to go to the doctor, you might wait and let that weird abdominal right. pain like persist. All right. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. Um, they also looked at urgent cares versus emergency rooms. Hmm. Um, there was a uh, recent research from the Perlem School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania um, that was in the peer-reviewed journal of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So we're letting you know it's all peer-reviewed. No, that's uh, good. That's good. Look, looked at um, patients rated urgent care facilities more favorably um, in online reviews than emergency rooms. No joke. I'm not surprised by that at all. And, so they looked at Yelp. Woo! <laughs> and, they, and they analyzed this. Um, so they... Um, so during that time that they looked at it from t- 2005 to 2017, an average of one new review for an emergency room, emergency department or urgent care uh, center appeared every hour, every day. Um, and so it kind of gives you like a snapshot look at, at different things. Um, and so to get a five star emergency rooms, uh, included things like bedside manner, treatment of family members and access to care at night and weekends. Um, but they tended to get negative remarks, um, on, uh, their speed of care while urgent care centers tend to receive one star reviews <laughs> for their poor reception experience. I thought was interesting. Let me tell you, we have a provider here called Zoom Care that you make an appointment online. They see you exactly at your appointment time and they have these like beautiful reception areas and their billing is annoying, but I'll probably go to them forever because it's so convenient. You can get an appointment like within two hours. They're always on time. It's an amazing thing. And I don't know if you've ever had, like, an emergency room experience, but you go to these emergency rooms and you wait for six hours and, like, I mean, it's pretty terrible. This this place that I went to actually warmed up the gown before they gave it to me to put on. Like, they had it in a little warmer. And I was like, what? It was amazing. <laughs> it, it was amazing. I don't know that the That's care delightful. was amazing. Like, the care was, like, was, like, oh, it was, it was you know. It was, yeah, it was not bad. Like, a guy had to give me, like, an EKG or something, and he had to redo it six times because he, like, 
Or... I don't I don't know if he had to or he just didn't know what he was doing or what. So I was like, well, okay, potentially the people working there are not the most experienced was my was my takeaway. But okay, like potentially the people in the emergency room aren't either or like, you know, half of our insurance companies won't cover emergency room visits if we go at the wrong time anyway, which is like, by the way, tangent, a huge ethical quandary because then you put people with potentially life-threatening medical problems in the in the position of having to determine for themselves whether or not it's like serious enough for the emergency room or not and when you financially disincentivize them from going to the emergency room you're going to have some people who should have gone to an ER who go to an urgent care and then die so it's kind of this interesting thing where obviously there's a huge cost savings and for most people this is going to work like they should have been at the urgent care anyway and so now they go to the urgent care great that works out but like you know there's going to be a couple people who, like, slip through their cracks and, they sh- and they're having a heart attack and they go to the stupid urgent care, you know? So. Right, yeah. That being said, this urgent care that I, that I went to, which should sponsor the podcast because I love them so much, they even – they have, like, a super <laughs> center kind of. So, like, you can go to the regular one and they'll be like, whoops, this is too serious. You need to go to, like, the super one. And the super one will also – you go online. Like, I had to go to the super one. And from I was at the first clinic. I made the appointment online. And by the time it was like half an hour, by the time I drove there, they were like, hey, great to see you. Ready to go. So and they had a policy of like they can admit people to the hospital from their urgent care from the super one. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like that was like an interesting an interesting improvement. I mean, I'd like to see them also improve the medical care a little bit. But like. I feel like you're going to get crappy medical care and an urgent care usually anyway. So I'd like to have crappy medical care in a setting with a beautiful mural on the wall and a warm gown. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. All right. Um, Another another thing you can do is your lifestyle can help you live 10 years longer. So people who had a healthy lifestyle were 82% less likely to die from cardiovascular disease and 65% less likely to die from cancer. Um. So it's looking at that, and then obesity in particular puts people at, at a risk of a whole host of problems. And then yeah. it talks about BMI and um, how the BMI of the average American man is up um, since the 1960s to 2.8.6, and anything over 30 is considered obese. Um, and it talks about obesity. And then my personal favorite, so <laughs> for no fucking apparent reason, it ends with, President Trump's has a BMI of 30.4, according to his latest physical. I'm not sure why that's there. It seems very <laughs> political to put that there. Yeah. I'm not sure why he popped up in my uh, reading about um, how to live longer, depending on where I live. But he's totally... Uh, All right. It's totally a thing. So in case you were worried about being obese, don't be. The president is also obese. And he's probably actually like... Just a little bit. He's a little more than a little. I like. I think he lied on his physical, right? Like that kind of came out later. I don't know if they're allowed to do that. <laughs> uh, well, didn't. Well, they definitely found that the doctor who signed the statement did not write the statement. That was one thing. Like the, the guy admitted yeah. that. So, um, good times. Yeah, I also think like so, yeah. This exercise 30 minutes a day or more, it's moderate exercise. So I don't I don't know if people always realize, like, you have to get your heart rate up a little bit. Like, taking a walk might not always mm-hmm. do it. 
But that being said, exactly. I think most people, if they walked 30 minutes a day, would be like way better off anyway. So every little bit helps. More research needed. I like that. I like that for the third study, they did not let us know that the, you know, they were like peer reviewed JAMA, peer reviewed Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is just the journal circulation, which apparently is just garbage. You know, we don't know. <laughs> Didn't check. Wow. So they're saying if men and women adopt these habits that they have outlined, it would add 14 years of life for women and 12 for men. And so what, what is that? Healthy diet, healthy weight, and exercising 30 minutes or more per day. Didn't drink, quote, too much alcohol and did not smoke. And I think the alcohol is one drink for women or something and two for men per day or something like that. I can't remember. Uh, all right, Laura, you just really wanted us to think about uh, body weight this this week. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it until we were talking about it that, that that's what was <laughs> happening. So it, it, it definitely happened. So um, our last news story comes from NPR News. Um, and scientific duo gets back to the basics to make childbirth safer. Oh, and to be so, to clarify, this is not NPR. This is MPR. Is that like Minnesota Public yeah, Radio? Yeah, but it's. I think so, but like it, it was it, it's 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 NPR. Oh, okay. The it's the Minnesota now, uh, yeah. Public Radio, which is hosting a story from NPR. So it's both. Um, but okay, so question. Where does most of our basic knowledge about pregnancy come from with research? Would you guess? Like where most does up to date information? Where does a lay person's information come from or where does like as a medical no, like, community? The medical community community, where's most of the research about childbirth from? What how how many years ago? Oh god. Oh. Uh 40. Um it it was most of the basic knowledge about pregnancy comes from research performed in the 1940s. Oh, so not 40 years ago, so I was kind of wrong, but that would have been 70, right, but, 70 years ago. Wait, no, 80. Mm-hmm. 80 years ago. Yeah. Whoa. Yep. Oh, no. Yep. Jesus. So um, if you have a normal pregnancy, it's not much of an issue. But if something goes wrong there are huge gaps in, in knowledge of pregnancy. We, Mm -hmm. um, so women die in childbirth because these things go wrong and we don't really know what, um, causes, uh, causes in a normal pregnancy, how women go into labor, what triggers labor. We don't really know. Okay. So if you are at a high risk or a um, if they're trying to prevent you from going into labor early, they don't really know what to do to stop it. Like it hasn't <laughs> been researched. So this uh, people are, these people are looking at going back to kind of more foundational. Um, and one of them is a um, OBGYN, I believe. And the other one's a mechanical engineer. Hmm. Um, so they're trying to, um, kind of look at more of the mechanics. So like um, about one in 10 babies in the United States are born premature. If those babies are born close to term around 35 weeks, 
they can do quite well. Um, but it can be problematic. Um, but a woman can have a problematic cervix um, and can go into labor much sooner. And that's more likely to cause a miscarriage or the um, baby to be born so early the child may die or face lifelong health problems. Um, so we don't know much about the cervix. So it says typically um, when you're not pregnant, it's as sturdy as like the cartilage in your nose. And then oh. right after pregnancy, it is as flexible as like softened butter. Oh. And they don't really know. Um, that, that seems like a big difference. About it. Yeah. And so like that's that anatomy and that change, like what causes that? How can we like manipulate that? You know, what can we use for that is what they're looking into. So um, the woman that's um, reported in the story went into labor early by um, after 25 weeks and her baby um, did not um, survive. Um, she had named the baby Iris mm. um, and created the Iris Foundation, um, which is which has raised more than $150,000 for this research. Um, wow. So trying to create a strong uh, legacy for this child, even if she didn't have a life. So, yeah. Mm. So we don't really understand childbirth. Yeah. Which is just like slightly frightening. <laughs> no, I know. Well, it as strikes me. Yeah. It's very frightening. And it strikes me as something that yet again, it's kind of like, that's a woman thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> so we know a whole we know a whole heck of a lot about like erectile dysfunction, right? Like we came up with the drug right. for that real quick. Like, why does a woman go into labor? Just nobody ever thought to ask. I don't know. Mystery. Yeah. So um, the mechanical engineer is looking at like the biomechanics of pre- pregnancy. So how much can the uterus stretch? How much pressure? pregnancy exerts on the cervix how much for force does a baby's kick put on on the whole system so looking at like all those different kinds of things you know what i learned i heard in a podcast the other night not a medical podcast it was um i was listening to this one called terrible thanks for asking which i highly recommend it's like great storytelling about just like challenges in life but this one person said that her baby kicked so hard that her water that caused her water to break I do not know if this is like, you know, cannot verify this, but um, interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. The baby was breech, I guess. And so maybe that was part of it. I don't know. Gravity was on the baby's side. I have no idea. But I was like, oh, like I, di- I didn't know that. I didn't know that was within the realm of possibility. Hey, did you see that about one in 10 babies are born prematurely in the U.S. each year? I did not know that. I, I guess like either, but... premature could be 39 weeks and five days maybe to, you know, like they don't mm-hmm. technically make it or something. Well, I'm glad that someone's looking into this. You know what else I want them to look into? Yeah. There's like this whole thing about women using nitrous oxide during labor that's common in other countries, but not super common here. But I've heard that it's super safe and super effective because it allows women to be in total control. Like if a contraction comes and you're in a lot of pain, you put the thing over your face. And then if you feel like you're getting a little too groggy or you want more whatever, you just move it off of your face. And so like you moment by moment 
you know, more or less, there's some lag time, but like can control your own pain and your own experience. And I was thinking that's super important and different from right now where women either get an epidural or they don't. And it's like a, it's like a yes, no black, white, you know, and there's no, you can't like, you can't like kind of get an epidural, right? Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't be like, I want the epidural, but just like, don't make it super numb. Like as far as I understand, it kind of is what it is. So interesting. The Iris Fund. Oh, yeah. It's the Iris Fund, not to be confused with the Iris Foundation, which is an Australian suicide prevention group. They have a gallery. Okay. Okay. The gallery is of their fundraiser. I was like a little concerned that the gallery was going to be something different. Um, Okay. I like that an engineer is involved too. I feel like we're more likely to get to the bottom of this (laughs) somehow. Like it's going to (laughs) be efficient research. Hey, Laura, guess what my, guess what my medical fascination is for the week? What? I don't really have one, but I'm going to say memory because I forgot we were podcasting until like a couple hours ago. And then it popped up on my calendar and I was like, oh, and then I saw your email and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, but yeah. Okay. So I feel like I've been noticing lately that I find myself saying to people, I think I already told you this, but let me know. And it's like, I know I have said a thing. I have said a story to someone, but I don't always know exactly which person I said it to. And I don't remember this really being a problem until like recently. So I'm not sure if I'm just talking a lot or if it's a memory thing or what, but it kind of made me think like, is memory something we can truly improve? Like we're still fairly young. Right. And so I really don't think this is like dementia or anything. And I don't think dementia is at all reversible really. But as far as just like average people, I've been wondering, you know, if I do crossword puzzles, am I going to do a better job remembering if I told you the story of my terrible run or not? Or is it just like, it is what it is. So what do you think? I'm, I'm not sure. Although I feel like, more recently, I've had more stories, and I can't remember who I've told them all to. So I keep saying, "Stop me if I've already told you this." A lot, yeah. Too, so, and it's it's kind of an uncomfortable but feeling. I just feel like that's because I'm a social butterfly right now. So, mm, so true. <laughs> no, I know. Sometimes I want to talk to you, and I'm like, "Oh, Laura's already got four social events lined up this week. I guess we're just gonna. I'll just wait. I'll just wait for another. Pencil me in for Monday. I understand your weekend's very busy." <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one with busy weekends. Well, that is true. That is true. I got so busy that I deleted Instagram from my phone and then I forgot about it. Like I just forgot Instagram existed. And then like this morning I was like, oh, like what happened to Gwen Jorgensen, who I like used to obsessively Instagram stalk? Spoilers, she's still a professional runner. She still has a super supportive spouse. An adorable little baby who wears a lot of Nike clothes because she's like a Nike-sponsored athlete. So I guess I didn't really miss much. And, yeah, I've been having some fun weekends. So do you have a political update for us? Because I'm going to tell you, I have not looked at the news recently, really. 
Um, so I think the current one is um, the unrest and um, crisis that's happening in Venezuela is having like a huge impact on its healthcare system, right? So like hmm. medicines aren't available, um, vaccination isn't happening. So um, Venezuela probably like 10 or 15 years ago had like this amazing uh, state sponsored uh, healthcare system where they had like effectively eliminated measles from the country. And they were like the first Latin America country to do so. And it was like this really big news. Um, and then oil prices crashed and that's, they have like an adversarial relationship with like a lot of countries and their main uh, source of income was oil. So it kind of collapsed their um, economy and it's been compounding and just getting worse and worse. And so now measles outbreaks are happening in neighboring countries um, because people are trying to leave Venezuela because it's so challenging and difficult. Um, and the hyperinflation is so bad there. Um, I think like, I'm not even, I don't think I'm over exaggerating. Like they said that high hyperinflation last year was like over a million, a million percent. Like, and I don't think that was like an exaggeration. I, I believe wow. that's what like you said, like, it's ridiculously expensive. Everything is ridiculously expensive. And so there are shortages of everything. So people are immigrating and there's, um, they don't have, they haven't had access to healthcare. So they're stressing like Colombia's, um, and Brazil's, um, healthcare systems are being stressed and it's just like a huge, a huge mess. Um, because for the last essentially like five or six years, people haven't been getting adequate healthcare, um, and as we just learned in this week, where you live matters because if you don't have access to primary care, um, then it can, you know, hurt your chances of living a long and happy life. Also, mm. uh, I think Colombia ha had had people sit for their medical boards and like 40% of them were Venezuelan doctors. So, like, the doctors are leaving Venezuela because it's just not a, oh, not sustainable. So, yeah, they're in a huge crisis right now. And so, um, trying to, two dueling presidents who say they're in charge of everything and, um, you know, aid being stuck at the border. And um, it's just a huge mess. So, that's my political health. Well, I appreciate that you chose a non-U.S. based story because I think our news tends to really focus on the U.S. and it's important for us to know what's going on elsewhere. As evidenced by the fact that I just went to Google News to see, like, I was like, oh, let me see if I can, like, see a little more about Venezuela and scrolling, 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 just not, just not seeing it, right? Like, it's just not there. And it's not because there's other more important things. Like, I'm down into, like, a section about uh, Megan. Markle, you know, sneaking into a museum in New York City. And somehow I want to say that a measles outbreak in Venezuela potentially is more important. I mean, and I should know living in a place that currently has a measles outbreak. Uh, shout out to my parents who got me vaccinated. Super duper appreciate that. It's been good. It's been good. <laughs> Well, Laura, I think that's Thanks, about... Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> uh, I think that's about enough bad patienting for me. Folks, if you want to ask us to cover a certain topic, you know we will. You can email hello at thebadpatient.com. You can find us on Twitter at The Bad Patient. 
And the best compliment you can give us is to share our podcast link or the URL, which is just thebadpatient.com with a friend you think might enjoy the show. And before we take off, I'm going to not forget to say a special thank you to composer Evan Schaefer, who did our theme song. Thanks, Evan. Thanks, bro. Until next time, we are Bad Patients.